Welcome to A Penny for Your Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by Sean Bloomgren and Andrew Penny from Central Iowa. On our show, we discuss all things agronomy, high-yield management, and give you real-time updates on what we're seeing and hearing in the field. We will also gain insight from industry professionals as we bring you relevant and timely information on current agronomic practices. Thank you for joining us. We'll get started. Andrew, uh, welcome. Um, go ahead and introduce our guest today. Yeah, uh, Sean, thank you. Uh, look, looking forward to this conversation. You know, we've had a, a lot of conversations with growers and, and seen, you know, a lot of stem canker uh, dealt with some diaporthy seed decay issues. And so, you know, I, I picked who I, who I feel like is, is definitely the expert in this area, uh, Dr. Fabina Matthew from North Dakota State University. Uh, Fabina, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're super excited to have you today. And Andrew, as we get started, I was thinking it's interesting. It seems like soybeans can be this emotional roller coaster, right? Some years we're we're so proud of ourselves, and other times, you know, we're we're frustrated maybe because we don't understand the management. So I think today's topic is both timely on the backside of harvest, but also will just be a great discussion. Um, before we start, Fabina, would you give us a little bit about your background, maybe where you're from, where you went to school, and uh, and what you're doing today? All right. So I am originally from India. I came years ago to North Dakota State University to pursue my master's and then doctoral degree in plant pathology. As I, for my master's, I worked on biological control of uh, sclerotinus rushiorum, causing oh, nice. mold in canola. And for my PhD, I was focused on Phomopsis stem canker of sunflowers, pretty much on species diversity and identifying lines with resistance to the diaporthy species. I worked for extension uh, plant pathologist, uh, Dr. Sam Markel. So while I was doing my PhD on sunflowers, um, and he is the row crops pathologist at NDSU, I had the opportunity to work on soybean and um, and, and few other oilseed crops like canola, flax, the pulse crops, um, and of course, sunflowers. Um, after I finished my PhD in 2014, I went to South Dakota State University, and I was their field crop pathologist for about eight years. Um, I worked on about 12 crops. Soybean was the primary focus, but I also got into corn and continued my research on sunflowers. And then I took a U-turn to North Dakota. <laughs> do, you, do you dislike uh, warm weather? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's like the Dakotas are like forever happy to have me. So I'm like, I'm like a full blast. I'm quite ready for the winter. South Dakota me. wasn't cold enough. We yeah. need to go to North Dakota. <laughs> I came back to Fargo last year, same time. Um, and, um, you know, I moved my crew. That included my graduate students and my technician. Oh, nice. And so we're here for a year now working on, um, well, right now I'm working on soybean, that's my primary crop, but I also, I'm going to be working on some microbial solutions for corn. I'm still continuing my research on sunflowers and a little bit of microbiome work in uh, field peas. So it's four crops at this time, wow. um, but it's, it's, it's all good. It's, it's all Dakotas anyways. <laughs> well, we, we have, you're going to be a great candidate for kind of the question we start our show with, which and with your diverse experience, tell us one thing you're excited about in agriculture today. Well, I can talk about the agriculture in Dakotas because I don't know anything outside that. I have to admit. <laughs> uh, you know, I, the, the one thing that has always excited me is the crop diversity. And again, I say this because I am in the Dakotas. It's not just soybean and corn everywhere, with all respects to Iowa. Uh, but <laughs> It's it's also wheat and alfalfa, there's livestock, there's a lot of things that the practical knowledge from farmers has always excited me. And that's one of the reasons why I've continued to stay here uh, in the Dakotas, because there's always a friendly um, interaction one-on-one -on -one with farmers where we get to learn not just what I know, which is plant pathology, but also production as well as acquaintance with some of the new technology that's coming. So uh, I think that's what excites me the most, learning, um, learning about new things. And but they, with the, um, you know, with the new technology that keeps revolving around us, it's, it's always exciting time when you, especially when you look back at what agriculture used to be maybe about 50 years ago. I did a, 
a short trip one time to North Dakota and met with a, another very successful ag input dealer. And, and it was funny because it was a very eye-opening experience for me to see the diversity of crops. And it kind of humbled me, like when I say I'm having a bad day and I have two crops to work with, because he was talking about how at any given moment, if the weather changes, they may completely abandon one crop and have to get rid of all that seed and bring in a whole new production system. And hmm. I just thought there's a, there's a much bigger world than, uh, than I'm used to here in central Iowa. But yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew, go ahead, introduce our topic and uh, kick us off here. Yeah. So, you know, th- this, is, this is a very interesting, and, and we're probably going to change up the, you know, how, how we do the show uh, for the next two episodes. You know, typically we have, you know, we, we talk about one management situation or one disease. We'll yep. talk about the science first and, and then the management, the second portion. With the diaporthy complex, you know, we, we have three different diseases or issues, uh, we'll, we'll say, associated with this. You know, we have uh, pod and stem blight, we have stem canker, uh, northern and southern, and, and then we also have diaporthy seed decay. And so I, I thought how we could best handle this um, is, you know, we'll, we'll talk about the science of these three different issues uh, for the first part, and then we'll talk uh, management for those three different issues in the second part. Perfect. So, so I figured we'd start with, uh, let, let's focus on stem canker uh, first, uh, Fabina. And so, uh, you know, I, I'd say just to get a broad idea, um, you know, when, when we use this term, the diaporthy complex, before we dig into stem canker specifically, um, what, what, is, what is the diaporthy complex? So diaporthy, in simple language, what it is, is a family. And there are members of a family that can combine to com- together to cause disease. So diaporthy <laughs> complex... Doesn't sound like a very good family. It's not a very good family. It's probably more notorious, probably, than, you know, comparable to Fusarium. Uh, but it's, yeah. it's a great family in the sense that they're very synergistic, as in they can come together, you know, in a friendly way and cause the disease in a way that you know, we see symptoms and eventually that leads to ear losses for the soybean farmer. Yeah. So ear losses uh, that has been documented for these several diseases. So pod and stem lies is about a 20%. Stem canker could go all the way up to 100%. Oh, wow. Uh, besides the, uh, the fact that it can take down the yield, it can also compromise the seed quality. And that's usually common when the soybean sits, um, you know, maybe because of delayed harvest or maybe because there's a spoiler rain, because of which soybean is not timely harvested. What happens is the fungus is just all over the place. So it somehow finds its entry into the pods and then starts feeding on the seed in yeah. a way that it appears discolored and shriveled. Yeah. And of course, no processes are going to take such seeds. Yeah. Um, I don't know of any studies in soybeans per se, but I know in sunflowers they have shown that diaporthy can compromise the oil content. So hmm. there could be a 10 to 15 oil loss associated also with this disease. But again, yeah. that applies to sunflower and maybe it does translate to soybean, but that needs a, a further research. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's a very good description of, of, you know, kind of what this diaporthy complex is. And, and so, uh, again, going, you know, breaking this part up in, into three different parts, let, let's focus on stem kicker first. And, and Fabina, to you and the listeners, you know, I apologize. Uh, again, some of these questions might be repetitive, but remember, we're dealing with three different issues that might have three different situations that that, that yep. favor them. So yep. so talking stem canker specifically, um, what, what do we know about the life cycle of this pathogen that, that causes stem canker? So the fungus um, is known to overwinter along the crop residues. So it produces structures, what we call peritacea, that can enable it to survive in the crop residues um, through the Dakota winters or, you know, it doesn't matter. It can still live through those. And um, the ascospores get released early in the spring. So typically, you know, the soybeans are just getting planted as the spores are released in the air. And this is coming off several of the epidemiological studies that has been historically done. Um, the ascospores land on the soybean plants. And we have studies suggesting that they're endophytes, meaning they live in the plant or they could be an epiphyte where they live on the plant, but they're not causing any symptoms immediately. But as the soybeans progresses into, um, you know, gets closer to flowering and then eventually into the pod stage, we start to see the symptoms because the ascospores would have germinated and then um, start to produce the symptoms that we would typically see, which is like reddish brown discoloration on the plants. Yeah. So, can, sorry, go ahead. No, so, so I was just going to say, so given, so given, um, 
given that life cycle, what what is the environment that favors that infection um, that we would ultimately see the the symptomology from? Right. So the conditions that favor disease development would be rainfall, um, re- relative humidity, maybe as high as 85, 90%, and um, also temperature. And temperature could be variable. It could be anywhere between 20 to like 30 degrees Celsius. And it's the temperature that really drives us to which of those species can be pathogenic at that given moment in time and space. Um, the key thing to remember about diaporthy species, although you know, we know there are several species that can infect soybeans. They are, they have a broad host range. They pretty much go to weeds. They could be in any of the volunteer plants like sunflowers, for instance. And we have some recent studies suggesting that diapurti could be an endophyte in corn, which hmm. is a very common crop that is rotated with soybeans. So um, besides wheat, you know, I I, I would want to say that many of the plants or wheat species that we have growing out in our fields could be hosts of diaporte. But there are very few hosts that are susceptible to diaporte, and soybean would definitely be one of them. But when you think about weeds, for instance, like cochia or redroot pigweed, they can just appear symptomless, meaning there's nothing happening on the wheat, but the fungus is living inside or on the plant. Yeah. So every every time we have these conversations and we bring pathologists and and uh, you know disease specialists on, it's always like there's this fascination with these diseases, and it's like that just sounds terrifying. They can live on a plant, but you don't know they're there, and then they wait for susceptible <laughs> hosts. It sounds terrible. Um, so 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 Fabino, you know, I'm I'm thinking about the symptomology that I typically see with with um, stem canker. And and then some of the, you know based on the life cycle you you just described is, is this an an infection that, that this pathogen can infect a, a plant at any time in that um, plant's life you know as long as that yeah. have conditions that are conducive like you just described or is this do we do we know is there a set time that that really favors this infection of this of this disease? So uh, from what from the studies that has come from my lab, the fungus could be on the plant anytime during its life during the life of the plant or the host. Um, However, we don't see the symptoms until the soybeans has entered the uh, adult stages, like it's past the flowering stages when we tend to see the symptoms, all the way until it is ready for harvest. So it is pretty much a long period, say, like in our area, uh, soybeans is usually planted by mid-May, give or take, and uh, we don't see the symptoms until August and our harvest happens by end of September, early October. If there's any situations where the harvest is delayed, then we start to see the symptoms develop at that time. It could be on the stem, it could be inside the pods, um, but that is the stretch that we have seen diapote. So what do we know about the symptomology? So if the infection take takes place, is that a guarantee that we'll see the cankers? Or is that a byproduct of stress-induced or um, environmental-induced symptomology? So there are two things in there. So stem canker is specifically caused by two fungi, um, diaporthi colivora and diaporthi aspalati. And these are the names that we know today. But if one were to refer back to the historical literature, for instance, diaporthi colivora was called diaporthi facelorum or colivora. Um, the names changed because there are molecular taxonomists like me who like to follow the DNA. <laughs> we, we call it a new species altogether and confuse everybody out. And that's one thing I really enjoy doing, confusing everybody out. So can can we expect um, a diaporthi fabina at some point? <laughs> like you find this new... I, I, I was close because I do have three new diaporties on soybeans that I'm an authority on. So <laughs> there you go. Nobody wanted to take chance with their names, so we went after how the spores look like under the microscope, and then we named it accordingly. Soybeans. <laughs> so yeah. Nice. Um, yes. So with this, go ahead. With the species, uh, with the species though, there are just two species that can cause canker. The, all the others just blight the stem, and they do not produce canker as far as our studies in the greenhouse. Okay. So, um, okay. so one thing to keep in mind is when you know, if let's say a farmer or anybody picks up a disease plant that they suspect is a diaporthy disease, it's hard to tell what species is causing the disease because the symptoms may not be distinguishable because everything does either 
very similar symptoms are produced in the greenhouse, or they could come as a complex and then kind of camouflage one one symptom over the other. Okay. okay. Well, um, I mean, so, that's that's a really good. Uh, I mean, you you almost led into my next question. You know, you, you mentioned two different species that can cause stem canker, right. and, and I'm right. I'm curious. You know, we have the northern and southern stem canker, and and, and I'm curious what what do we know about any differences between those pathogens, and, and then kind of with that, you know. Do we know of any different, is, is is northern versus southern, is that more of a geographical thing? Is that just by chance or where, where's that line drawn between where we typically see northern versus southern stem canker? So to to the best of my knowledge, that definition of northern versus southern does not exist and should not exist. And really? that's simply because uh, Diapoti aspilati has been reported in Wisconsin and Ohio. So it sort of broke the barrier in that geographic region. So okay. I typically, when um, I'm asked, okay, what is stem canker all about? I say stem canker is caused by two pathogens, um, uh, Diaporti colivora and Diaporti aspilati. There are states where both the pathogens may exist. It may coexist or it may just exist in like different fields. Yeah. Um, but there are areas where it could be one or the other also. Okay, so that's that's really good to know. So really, we should we should start training ourselves and growers to maybe just not talk northern or southern stem canker. It, that's it just, correct. Yeah. Okay, yeah. that's really good yeah, to know. And also, we identified diaporti colivore in Tennessee, so that's the southern part of the U.S. So it is like it's 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 just all over the place at this time. Awesome. Do do we know? You know, we'll we'll get into this as we we start talking diaporti seed decay um, and, and some of the the impact. With, with stem canker specifically, you know, thinking about seed production acres and then those seeds with potential diaporthy seed decay, uh, ha, you know, being an issue, is, is there any relationship, you know, can stem canker be seed transmitted? And and then do we know if 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 a seed is infected with diaporthy seed decay, does that lead to stem canker? So studies do suggest that they can be transmitted we are seeds, but you know that's one of the things that we discourage the farmers from planting, right? Using seeds from their yep. own bins, they go after certified seeds. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yep. Right. So if the plant is infected uh, with either Diaporti colivore or Diaporti ascolari, there are possibilities that we can isolate them from the seeds. It's just that that seed might appear to be asymptomatic. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that you know, it's uh, it's in a paper that was recently published in twenty twenty one, where we identified new species of diaporti in soybean. Many of the seed seeds that we got from seed lots were actually asymptomatic, but fields where symptoms were seen on the plant but nothing on the seed, and we were still able to get diaporti out of those seeds when we incubated or performed the traditional plant pathology techniques. Interesting. Um, yes. So so it's quite possible that it can go from the stem to the seeds, but we just may not see the symptoms necessarily at the time when it's being harvested. Do, do we know, you know, I, I remember back in 2018 when I was part of Iowa State, you know, we, we had a bunch of seeds we were testing from seed companies that that had diaporthy seed yeah. decay in it. You know, if yeah. if is there any relationship between planting a seed? You know, I, I remember seed uh, um, fungicides, you know, seed treatments will impact that and reduce that that risk. Is is there any risk, uh, you know, say you plant a, a seed that has diaporthy seed decay, Does can that lead to stem canker? Well, if colivore or aspilati is present in the seed, yes. It could potentially? Okay. It, could, it could potentially, yes. Okay. Um, but but that would be something that we would be trying, like, in the greenhouse to see how much, uh, you know, what is the disease incidence for such infected seeds. Usually when we put it into onto a plate, like a culture media, like potato dextrose agar, it hardly germinates. It just dies. Oh, okay. Because the fungus is pretty aggressive. That aggressive, those, huh? Yeah, on the susceptible seed. Hmm. Yeah. Or it may germinate and then we start to see something on the roots, but it probably doesn't go too far. Though. Uh, we've got three different um, expressions we're going to talk about, and we're going to ask kind of the same question at the end of each yeah. one. Yep. So as we wrap up talking about stem canker, um, what should we look for when we're scouting a field? So what does it look like? And what are the situations that would maybe trigger a scouting event uh, to go out and look for stem canker? So uh, one of the things that I usually tell the farmers is, you know, and that doesn't necessarily have to apply for diaporty diseases, but it could be any disease, including white mold, phytophthora, is to start scouting diseases when the soybeans enters the adult stage. That's from R1. Uh, flowering stage up, 
there are several diseases that look very similar at that given time and space. So it could be, you know, like one's driving in a pickup and they think it's white mold from a distance because there's some random plants that might be in the field that might be affected by it. Um, but if, you know, over time, if it kind of changes to like linear rows of plants having disease, then it may be a little beyond white mold. I'm not saying white mold cannot go in a more linear fashion, but it goes more like a crop circle where it just starts to spread and then it's, you know, there's more of a white cottony growth and so on for white mold. Yeah. With diaporthy, though, um, you will find this brown discoloration that can start anywhere on the plant. Um, and if you compare that with phytophthora, phytophthora usually starts from below the soil line and then moves up. But diaporthy could start on a, any node. It could be on the top foliage. It could be somewhere midway. It could be even right at the base. And then the lesion starts to spread longitudinally as well as along the petiole to enter the pods and so on. Um, so, you know, it's like, it's, uh, you know, when we talk about stem canker, the, I think the best... Um, the association I can make is with cancer. It's like a slow poison. It starts slowly, and then as the conditions are right, which we talked about environmental conditions, but another uh, another factor that can help with disease development is the aging of the soybean plants. As it's aging, its immune system is getting compromised. So what happens is the fungus then starts to pick up even faster. Oh, yeah, that so makes the, sense. The host physiology also plays a very big role for diaporthy, but it's like cancer. It's like a slow poison. Then over time, it just picks up and then compromises the yield. Yeah, well, that's that's a good explanation. Um, no, that's, a, that's a good question. Good answer. Uh, you know, as as we transition to the the, com the conversation of the the science behind uh, pod and stem blight, um, you know, let, let's let's start with the you know in, in a similar fashion. Um, so so talking pod and stem blight, Fabina. Um, and, and again, maybe there's some similarities. Uh, what do we know about the life cycle about those species within the diaporthy complex that caused pod and stem blight? So pod and stem blight, um, as of today, we know there are three species that can cause the disease. Um, it's a disease that I have seen usually at maturity, especially here in the Dakotas. So as the soybean is getting ready is when I would see. And the first time when I really saw yield losses was... Uh, I believe it was 22. And, you know, soybean looked very healthy until it was ready for harvest. And within a week or two, we had this spoiler rain. I get back to my field my uh, where I had my trials. And I hardly got about 20 bushels per acre from that field. And then it was just really? a pot and stem blight. Yeah. Hmm. We made some, um, we made isolations of the stems to see what uh, organism it was. All that we got were diaporthy species. Um, there are three that are known to cause disease, uh, especially in our area, it's three, but in most parts of the U.S., it's two. The more common ones is diaporthy soje and uh, diaporthy longicola. Um, they, so the difference between the two, stem canker and pod and stem blight, is that for pod and stem blight, it's a disease that you would see closer to maturity, and there are linear rows of fruiting structures on the plant. They're like black dots, but they're not like pepper dots. They're a little more bigger in size. And sometimes it's hard to make out between anthracnose and pod and stem blight because they look fairly similar. Yeah. Um, so that's where the you know confirmation from a plant diagnostic clinic comes in because they can be a little difficult to tell apart. But it appears a little bleached, not as bleached as the uh, as white mold, but more like tan colored. But that black array or linear dots is very critical to make the identification. So, so look um, for those linear rows. You know that that's kind of something you do com commonly see with some like you know charcoal rot or some of these other diseases. You'll yeah. see black mm -hmm. speckles. So with pod and stem blight, look for those linear kind of a straight line black black speckles. Right. Right. Yep. And and because there is a pod blight issues, then what you would see is more like reddish, like uh, like reddish colored roundish lesions on the pods. Um, and this that is pretty common as as the soybeans is getting ready for harvest or is getting closer to maturity. So kind of going back to the same theme, what are the environmental conditions that usually lead the, lend themselves to pod and stem blight? So the uh, the uh, the conditions are very similar to stem canker. It still needs rainfall and humidity. Um, the the between the two, longicola is probably more common. 
um, that can cause spot and stem blight. And laundry cola has got a very broad host range. I mean, it in at least in our area, it can also infect dryable beans and field peats. Uh, you know, and I've done some cross pathogenicity work as part of my PhD. So it's got a broad host range. It's just everywhere. But the difference that I have seen is that pot and stem blight needs um, cooler temperatures. If we're looking at like 20 to 25 for the fungus to be able to cause um, infection on soybeans. But when it comes to the stem canker pathogens, they're usually active between 25 to 30. Hmm. They need a little more warmer condition. Okay. And, and that's maybe why we see stem canker maybe like maybe like in the month of August while I'm seeing pot and stem blight as it's starting to cool down. Because the temperature plays a little bit of role. And also keeping in mind that a lot of the varieties that we have grown, growing in our area, they're all susceptible to these species. Hmm. Does So it seems like there's this whole conversation around the idea of earlier and earlier planting soybeans um, from, a, from a yield potential standpoint. Does that affect... Um, this complex of diseases? Because, I mean, we're, we're really kind of talking about late season infection and late season symptomology. So does planting date have an impact on that? So uh, we, as in uh, my program in collaboration with Dr. Mueller at Iowa State, we have few trials that we- We don't talk at. about him on this. On <laughs> yeah, this. we- yeah, we call we call him Darren. <laughs> That's funny. He he was actually asked to potentially co-host this yeah. just because I know he's he's also an expert on diaporthy, but he chose not to come on. Yeah, this he episode. said he said no. So we're gonna yeah. we'll have to put in some sort of a yeah. We'll have to call him out on the episode. So anyway, so you were saying, Doctor, somebody from Iowa State. <laughs> Doctor Know It All from the Island. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. There you go, Doctor Know It All. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm going to give him a hard time. I'm surprised that he refused to come to the show with me. <laughs> <laughs> so we have a currently we have a study that's looking at planting date, but um, you know the one other study that I've uh, that you know we finished together along with Damon Smith was looking at the effect of maturity groups um, on from yeah. diseases, and so we found the later maturity groups are going to be more susceptible to uh, these diaporty diseases than compared to the early maturity. Hmm. And so, you know, our planting does take place by May, but diaporty on soybean has not quite been a problem here in the Dakotas, mainly because our crop gets harvested by September, early October at the most. But in southern regions where the soybeans tends to stay a little longer and perhaps planted early, there's high possibilities that, yes, they're going to be susceptible to diaporty. So we were oh. able to show that through one of our recent publications that's coming out. Yeah. But yes. Know it all. Well, that's that's really good info. Um, I'm definitely going to reach out to Doctor Know It All at at some point. Um, But you know, thinking about pot and stem blight, I I mean, we have we have uh, stem blight. Obviously, the stems are out from the moment the seedlings emerge, right? And and then the the pods aren't out till much later, right? Obviously, until reproductive stages. does this disease, you know, at any point in that plant life cycle, as long as the stems are out and or the once the pods are out until the moment the the plant is harvested, is it can can that pathogen infect at any point as as long as those are out or or does this disease have kind of a prime infection period like we see with some diseases? No, it's it's quite possible that the pathogen is all, already on the plant or in the plant, you know, as an endophyte or epiphyte, but it is just waiting for the right conditions to become a pathogen. So as much as we know, the environmental conditions like rainfall, temperature, humidity has a role. The host physiology plays a huge role in switching it from one lifestyle to the other. Yeah, mm. yeah. So, something that is switching it from an endophytic phase to pathogenic phase. So it strikes basically when the iron is hot. Man, it I, could be like the infection might happen after R5 stage, after the pods are fully developed because there's a spoiler rain or the soybean fell sick because there are other pathogens that are present in the field. It could be a weed issue. It is stressing out. Yeah. It may not be related. And that's when the fungus actually strikes. So it can infect pretty late into the season. Yeah. Well, I, I, lo- I love where this conversation goes because we ha- we have so many diseases. I mean, crown rot would be a prime example. We know so little about it. And then we start using right. these terms endophyte, you know, it is that we'll, we'll call it an organism going within the plant and just yeah. kind of hanging out there and not being pathogenic, not hurting the plant. 
just waiting right. for some stress to occur or waiting for the sugar content in the stock to be at such a low level that it, it, it can invade. So I, I love where our research is going with this because I feel like there's a lot of diseases we don't know the answer to. And we potentially think that organisms just, just in that plant. And then the second yeah. we have a drought stress, we have any nutrient deficiency, then that pathogen can potentially just take over. So I, I like where you're going with your, tra your train of thought and just the, the research in general. Right. So I wanted to add one more. So we did talk about the soil, the fungus being able to survive in the infested crop residues, but also our studies have shown that the spores can travel a mile, like, you know, the sclerotinia spores would. So I may not have the problem in my field, but if my neighbor has had problems in the last four or five years and the fungus is proliferating out of his field, it's likely that my crops can oh. be. So, so the, the North or South Dakota winters have no impact on the survival structures of this disease, huh? <laughs> No, they're not as fierce <laughs> as, you know, one would see in the movie Fargo. It doesn't seem like these <laughs> so, so if they can survive North Dakota, they, they yeah. should easily be able to survive in Iowa and Illinois then, right? Yeah, they're doing just fine <laughs> down here. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know if the wind would carry it all the way from Iowa to North Dakota, but I can believe it. Like, when you think about rust spores and everything, it must be all shooting from Iowa to the northern side. <laughs> so, so earlier you mentioned uh, some, you know, these, these black spots and... And then we have these zone lines within the stems, right? Yeah. Um, do, do we know, you know, we, we have very dis somewhat distinct symptoms with, with, with this disease. What, what, right. what is those, what are those black spots in, in those zone lines within the stems? What's, what's the cause of those? So those, uh, the black spots are the zone lines that pretty much the structures produced by the fungus on the plant. It could be a survival mechanism. Um, it's usually, you know, the zone lines look like a pattern on the soybean, you know, right at the base of the soybean stem. And that zone line comes about as the fungus is producing structures and the, and the plant is uh, preparing for maturity, as, in, as it's dehydrating or trying to, you know, is losing its moisture content. Okay. So that's why it starts to produce those patterns. Um, the black dots are pycnidia. That's where the spores come out for these fungi. Um, there's, again, a survival mechanism because they are also known to be saprophytes, meaning they start to feed on these dead tissues. So soybeans, as it's entering uh, or getting closer to maturity, you know, they become just woody. woody. They, don't, they don't have life anymore. And that's when this fungus starts to produce these structures so it can survive through. Yeah. Well, I, I think we kind of touched on symptomology yep. and, and what that looks like. Um, just, just so we, I, I think you touched on this too, but I think this is important. Um, you know, differentiating between charcoal rot and diaporthy. You know, mm -hmm. you know, you, you did a really good job of describing what what diaporthy pot and stem blight looks like. Well, just just to clear up for our listeners, what how, how can we distinguish charcoal rot versus diaporthy seed uh, or uh, pot and stem blight? Right. So uh, traditionally, what I mean, what I tend to do is I tend to look at the base of the stem, so I kind of split the stem. And if I notice any peppery um, like structures on the side of the stems, like on the interior side of the stem, closer to the pit, then that sense that tends to be charcoal rot. They are essentially the microsclerotia that is produced by the fungus. If there is something like a black line inscription that is inside that soybean stem, then that would be diapole Okay. Um, that's that's the way to tell them apart. Um, yeah, uh, uh, there could be. Well, I was going to add there could be other diseases too, like Phytophthora, where you probably wouldn't see any of the black lines or bike structures. But yeah, maybe from the, the the timing when it hits the plant, it causes infection on the plant. Um, some can one can tell Phytophthora apart from those because Phytophthora infection usually happens from the bottom up. Okay. It just kills the plant over time. I'm sure it's an experience thing, but I, I've always felt like corn diseases kind of like take place in like one box and they're easy to, <laughs> they're easy to diagnose. And it seems like there's a lot of overlap in, in soybean diseases. So soybeans are just complicated in, in general. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. wild. <laughs> um, pot and stem blight, uh, talk a little bit about, can it be transmitted through seed? Um, is there a relationship with infected seed and the potential for, um, the disease? For the blight. So, so uh, the pot and stem blight is, uh, as we know, is primarily caused by Diaporthy longicola, which is also the primary pathogen causing CTK. 
And uh, longicola could be isolated from any of the plant pods. So my thinking is that it can go from the pods to the seeds directly. And then if the if the soybeans tend to stay longer in the field because of delayed harvest or a spoiler rain, then it's going to give the right conditions for the fungus to sporulate on the seed and cause infection. Hmm. Uh, so that's the connection between the two. Um, again, we don't usually encourage farmers to plant soybean seeds harvested from the previous season, but if but studies have shown that around 10% give or take seed transmission is possible, like of these pathogens. And as a result of that, seedling rot um, could easily happen where, you know, the seeds may germinate, but then the plants eventually die because of necrosis and severe infection. Yeah. yeah. But it's encouraged, yeah, the plant infected seeds. Well, that's good to know. Um, that, that's a good wrap up to the science portion of, of pod and stem blight. Um, Fabina, let, let's transition to uh, diaporthy seed decay. And, and mm -hmm. I would say before before we get into uh, some of the science behind that, I, I got to ask because I, I feel like we, we still will commonly use Fomopsis. Mm -hmm. So so why why the change? What what was the, the trigger that caused the change to go from Fomopsis seed decay that we were all used to using years ago to now diaporthy seed decay? So, uh, you know, I, I believe it was Wingfield in 2012 brought out this paper called One Fungus, One Name, um, and where they kind of said that, uh, the that of course, we just stick to one name for the fungus, and then whichever is older is what gets its name. So Diaporte is actually the older name for these species, um, and so that's why it's called Diaporte. Um, it used to be Formopsis. And the difference between the two, diaporthy is the teleomorph, which is a sexual stage, and uh, formopsis is the asexual stage anamorph. But we don't have those distinctions anymore, and we will have to stay with diaporthy. Okay. So on soybeans, um, if you go back to the literature, the way I understand from the 1920s, 1940s, uh, the diseases were named after from where the fungus was isolated from. So if it was isolated from the stem, it was called stem canker because it caused canker-like symptoms on the stem. If it just blighted the stem, it was called stem blight. Okay. And, and CDK became CDK uh, and so on. So um, again, because of that one rule, many of the species of uh, diaporthy are called diaporthy. There are a few exceptions, like the ones that infect uh, citrus fruits is still called Formopsis citri because of quarantine issues. Okay. Uh, that's another thing that is associated with these organisms. They can be quarantined in certain parts of the world. Huh. So so if anything, you're telling me don't expect a, a Formopsis fobina decay <laughs> or, or expect, if anything, it's going to be a diaporthy <laughs> fobina. Uh, yeah, no, I should, yeah, I don't know if I want to quite get in the quarantine list and, you know, they export this for countries. <laughs> so, so it's probably safe to just leave it with, you know, name it on the host or Dr. Know-it-all, you know, just name it in the mind. <laughs> we need that. You know, you know how you can buy like an acre on the moon? We need to figure out how to name a disease. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Like, the Nodal. Yeah, Diaporthy Mueller. <laughs> sort of like something you get if you go down the wrong alley. Um, walk us through the uh, life cycle of the pathogen. So Diaporthy longicolor specifically is, uh, you know, it's I, I would want to say it follows like every other Diaporthy species. It's it can survive in the crop residues. Um, but one thing that is unique about this fungus is that we don't know if it actually has a telemorph stage where it is producing ascospores. For all the other species of diaporte, we know ascospores are produced. People have uh, documented peritisia that is living in the that is in the infested crop residues. But for diaporte, they, the longicola, they have not been able to find. So my thinking is that a lot of that spreading must be happening through conidia production that we already see on these infested uh, crop residues as black dots. That's the pycnidia. Mm -hmm. And so they can be splashed by rain. Um, they can be picked up by wind, but I don't know if that really travels long distance. Um, so that's that's how I understand the longicola. The conditions, again, it needs rain, of course. Uh, the temperatures need to be cooler for longicola infection. That's hmm. usually about 20 to 25 degrees Celsius. Um, and the fungus is, again, an endophyte, uh, and we don't uh, you know, see it uh, being a problem until the soybean reaches the maturity or if it, there's a delayed harvest. Well, that's that's uh, 
that's good to know, you know, uh, associating the cooler temps. And, and again, thinking back to, I, I think it was 2018 when we had really bad mm-hmm. diaporthy seed decay. You know, I, I can yes. remember that that fall. It was cooler, but but the, the biggest thing I think that impacted obviously we just we just had so much. It felt like there was so much wetting and drying going on, right? We we would get a rain, it would be dry out, and then we'd get another rain. Har- you know, growers couldn't get in the field to harvest their soybeans, so I felt like there was this constant wetting and drying going on in the field. And, and then yes. sure enough, we had really bad diaporthy seed decay. We were getting uh-huh. a bunch of samples into the university. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, th- this disease this disease shows up on, on the seed. Um, you know, thinking about it's a it's a seed decay. Is, is this something that spores land on the pods and there's infection? Is is this something that you know pod and stem blight? You have that and it leads to seed decay. How, how do we mm-hmm. get diaporthy seed decay? Um, you know, what what's that process look like? So that uh, that's an interesting question because honestly, I don't know the answer to that. We so in this particular field that we saw pod and stem blight. This was when I was leaving Brookings um, in twenty twenty two where the yield would have been down to like 20 bushels per acre. Uh, We collected samples from the stem pods and then, of course, the seeds that were in there. And we saw different species across the three plant pods. The stem was giving us longicola, pod had two other species, and then the seed again had longicola plus something. So um, how it enters from the pods to the stem, what I would think wounding is a possibility. It could be natural wounds. It could be like animals feeding, whatever, um, and somehow the fungus is able to find an entry point, reach the seeds, but again, the conditions has to be right for us to see the symptoms. Um, And, you know, if there is any mechanisms internally, like you would see with fusarium, where there is a lot of movement through the vascular bundles, that is not being documented for diaporte. Mm. So I I don't know if there's a lot of internal transfer of these spores. A lot of it should be happening externally. Well, now now you kind of got me thinking too, and and I don't know if we even know the answer to this, but I mean, I mean, you think about some of those conditions we saw that year, think about pods shattering or or even when Mm -hmm. they're still attached to the plant. You get some right. pods that will have cracks in them, and you oh, can, yes. you can kind of see. So I'm yeah. wondering if there's any relationship between varieties that would maybe have pods that are more likely to open up or, or you know, just uh, shrivel and, and open right. up to show the seeds. I wonder if the pathogen could get in there and cause diaporthy seed decay. I'm, I'm, I don't know if we know that, but again, just just thinking out loud. Yeah, so that could that that's what we concluded with when we saw differences in species diversity. But we didn't pursue that. That's an angle that we would want to look into to see if there was differences between pods what's on this on the pods versus what is inside the box yeah yeah um, yeah it was interesting because we had um conditions in central iowa that really favored beans getting really really dry this fall i mean we were harvesting beans well below maybe the optimum point and so we thought well do we let them sit for a while and try and pick some moisture back up but then a lot of those comments people were referring to that that fall harvest where we you know, we couldn't get in the field and then you started to have pods prematurely open up or or maybe appropriately open up, but you start to worry about just even losing the soybean entirely as those pods start to, yeah. um, you know, start to open up later in the season. So, yeah, um, yeah very interesting. Um, does the other diseases that we've talked about in the diaporthy complex, stem canker um, or pod and stem blight, do they increase our likelihood potentially of um, diaporthy seed decay? It can, because uh, it really depends on the timing of infection. Um, usually, you know, stem canker, if it's in a field that is uh, where, the, where, the, where the farmer has seen uh, disease maybe in the last five years, it's a tight rotation, soybean corn, soybean corn. Uh, chances of the infection happening much earlier, is, it's, it's pretty high. Um, and that's, again, assuming conditions are favorable for disease development, the farmer has chosen a susceptible variety or didn't have information on whether the variety has genes. Um, and so that, if the infection starts early, it's quite possible that that might be something happening on, on in, in or on the seeds by the time the soybeans is getting ready for harvest. But again, there's also the other chance where the fungus is on the plant, but it's too hot for it to cause disease, so it's just going to hang out you know, till the conditions might be right. And then we start seeing the symptoms right at the end of the season. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so so the so it's like a disease triangle. Everything is there. It's just that the condition has to be right for the fungus to strike. And that's yeah. that, That's a little hard to judge sometimes and, from a management perspective. Yeah, and, and then having, you know, tie, tying back to the whole endophyte conversation, it, it probably even complicates things more. You could probably make a square instead of a disease triangle, probably a square because you have the environmental conditions 
But then you probably, I mean, potentially, we don't know, you, you maybe also need some sort of stress in that plant, right? Yes. At, at, at the yeah. proper time. So right. it, yeah, it just complicates saying it's not just temperature we got to worry about. Uh, yeah. it, it's also some potential stress, maybe whether it's, you know, nutrient shortage or, you know, just high, high temperatures, drought, whatever, whatever it may be. Right. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you know, with this, and, and I'm sure this is probably a similar answer, um, say we have si diaporthy seed decay. And, and this is what I remember, you know, uh, Mueller's lab, uh, testing, uh, at Iowa state in 2018, I, I remember seed treatments were really effective at, at managing, uh, diaporthy seed decay, but, you know, do we know if, if, you know, you have a, a seed lot that has diaporthy seed decay, is, is that going to increase the chance of in the, in the other diaporthy complexes, the, the following growing season? Hmm. So uh, my thinking is that if the farmer has to pick seeds from that particular seed lot, then the chances could be high again, assuming that the conditions are right for it to cause disease. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the seed treatments are great um, to manage maybe, but we currently as a group lack the efficacy data for, uh, you know, how it could be a, you know, if house, if seed treatments are even perfect, like it can, con like it would control physiology and root rot or other root rot issues. We don't know if they're really effective in controlling diaporty diseases. Um, when you, if you, if one were to use that as an option early into the season. Um, but there are studies suggesting that QIs are working effectively. Like there's some data that's coming out of our group uh, that it can help control seed infection. Um, but the challenge with these fungicides is as much as we are able to show in the greenhouse and in the lab it's working, in the field, everything is completely oh, yeah. different. Yep, absolutely. And, we, and we're trying to figure out why. It seems like that's often the case. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's more common than not. Um, it, would you talk uh, briefly about the symptomology of diaporthy seed decay? Sure. So uh, diaporthy seed decay, again, it could be a complex of pathogens fungi on a single seed. You could get three or four at the same time. It could be one single fungi on the seed. Um, it usually, their symptoms of, it cannot be distinguished. Like you wouldn't be, you would look at a, at a white discolored seed and think it's just one fungus. But in reality, it could be up to three or four or how much ever, how many ever the seed can actually handle. Um, the, so the symptoms are not distinguishable among species. It usually appears white, in discoloration and it appears shriveled. Um, it might be like half the seed. So it looks pretty dry from, a, you know, if you were to look or hold it against the healthy seeds. Okay. So they're um, typically, sm so soybean seeds are typically smaller when they're infected with diaporthy? Yes. Okay. Yes. Smaller seeds. Or white discolored and sometimes you get to see like pick media on the surface. Now there could be other uh, organisms like for instance, downy mildew of soybean that I happen to see at Iowa State um, and I mean, you know, it was it was the symptom was very similar to what you would see for seed decay. But again, the downy mildew organism it probably didn't produce as many spores as the diaporthy would. So um, the cercospora is pretty straightforward because it has a purplish tinge, and um, and so one can tell apart between cercospora and diaporthy. Uh, but there could be other pathogens too that you know we tend to isolate from the seeds, but we sort of dismiss off because we don't necessarily know what it's doing, like fusarium, for instance. Yeah. yeah. Um, so as we, we, you know, we just, we just wrapped up the science portion of, uh, I would say these, these three different issues in, individually. Now, now we have a few questions just because uh, again, this is a little bit different, you know, and we have so many species that can impact or, or that are part of this diaporthy complex. Um, with all these species associated with the, the diaporthy complex, and, and you kind of, you've kind of mentioned longicola uh, numerous times for what uh, seed decay and then pod and stem blight, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Do, do we know, have we done enough research? Do we know if, if any of these other multiple species that are involved in this complex are, are involved with all of these diseases? Or do we, do we kind of know that there's specific ones that are more, that, that, that impact these specific issues and diseases more so than the others? So for me, I, I, you know, when I, in any time if I'm publishing, I'm talking to farmers or companies, I refer to them as diaporthy diseases. It's really very complicated to uh, differentiate 
the diseases based on organisms because one would be like you just mentioned diaperty longicola could be a stem blight fungus it could be a cdk fungus or or the stem canker fungi could be isolated from the seed so i just uh, you know tell people that okay these are diaperty diseases that can infect any plant pods it could be the roots stems leaves pods uh, seeds anything that can really uh, um, get soybeans okay um yeah so there's an emerging technology and concepts talking about looking at uh, DNA analysis in the soil profile. Um, do you have experience with those? And do you think there's potential uh, ability to use that type of technology to see if the species are in a field? Yes, because we uh, and my lab has developed diagnostic assays for specific detection of diaporte. Hmm. Um, so currently we have... Um, uh, assays for diaporti colivora, longicola, and just recently we did a diaporti ascolari. So awesome. uh, these assays were pretty much done keeping farmers in mind because I do get a lot of grower samples or even researchers, diagnostic labs, they tend to send samples over to my lab for accurate pathogen identification. Yeah. Um, and so we, uh, you know, as much as we tend to do the cul uh, culture-based identification, we also extract DNA directly from the soil or the plant samples and run the qPCR assay. One thing I, I guess we we didn't really talk about, and and maybe this is a management question, but so if we think about all of the diaporthy as a complex, and and we're not really necessarily trying to to tease it apart, do we know the potential economic uh, threat to either an individual soybean field or, or kind of soybean production as a whole in terms of um, either yield loss or stand reduction, that type of thing? Right. So uh, based on the figures from the Crop Protection Network, I want to say between 96 to 2022, um, 20. I don't know if it's 21 or 28 U.S. producing state in Ontario, Canada. I believe the soybean industry would have lost about $4 billion to diaporthy alone. Wow. Um, yeah. So it is in the top five diseases, maybe in the if, if you take it across 90, between 96 to uh, 2000, 2022, across 28 some U.S. states and Canada. Wow. So um, it is yield this, impacting for sure. Yes, it is yield impacting, but it has been understudied, underestimated, um, because just because there are other diseases that came about that uh, became that quickly, um, you know, became significant, like soybean cyst nematode or sudden death syndrome, um, and so on. So that's interesting. That's, I can't, that's, a lot, that's a lot of dollars lost. I can't think of a better way to transition to say let's uh, let's discuss how to management <laughs> manage this. Can you? Yeah, no, that's that's a good one. I'd say that's that's a wrap for the science portion of uh, discussing the diaporth complex. Uh, yeah. looking looking forward back look, you know looking forward to coming back with part two where we talk management with uh dr fabina matthew from north dakota state thank you fabina thank you it sounds like a past part one so it's part two now <laughs> <laughs>